Hey, welcome to Access. John here. I felt convicted to issue out a message to all who are listening to these podcasts from home uh, that if you're not a part of Rungi First Baptist Church, that I am not your pastor and that these messages are designed to be a supplement to your daily walk with God, not a substitution for the church. I strongly encourage you to stay in fellowship with other believers through the local church, and if you're a part of Rungi FBC, then we can't wait to see you when you return. If you're ready to begin with today's study, then turn to John chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, because this message is entitled, The Lazy River. Have you ever had the pleasure of sitting on an air tube and floating down the lazy river? Two times this summer, we've been able to take our boys to Splashway, which is in Sheridan, Texas, which if you've never been there. I hate to promote the place like I'm trying to sell something, but it's just awesome. This is a huge water park out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we plan on going again before the summer's over, but um, it, just like every good water park, has a lazy river, and it takes you around the park. And I've discovered, you know, I must be aging because giant water slides aren't my thing anymore. They don't really appeal to me. No, my favorite thing to do is to sit in an inner tube and float down the lazy river. And I try my best not to think about how many people have used the bathroom in it because they were too lazy to get out of it and go to the nearest facility, which could be where they actually get the name for the lazy river. I don't know, just something to think about. Well, last time our family was floating down the lazy river, Aaron and I were just sitting back and relaxing and enjoying ourselves. We've given each of our boys a life jacket and an inner tube of their own. And um, I look up. And there's no Pete. Pete, my, my second son, he, he was gone. He's four years old. And we, we didn't know what happened to him. I, I started panicking. I, I, I thought like maybe um, like he had drowned or, or worse. Someone had taken him. And I suspected that possibly the river must have taken him in a different direction the last split that we went past. And so what I started to do is I started fighting against the current uh, to get back to where I last saw Pete. And if you've ever done this, you know this is not easy. Fighting against the current will wear you out. And if you're wondering, we found Pete. And just as we had suspected, the current had taken him in a different different direction. There was a little split in the river. and So but we look up, though, and he's not, not there. By the time I got to him, I was completely out of breath. He was fine, but I was tired because... You're not supposed to go against the current in the lazy river. When you're in the lazy river, it's a fight just to stay in the same place, much less move against the current. And you know, sometimes it's it's pretty nice just to sit back and relax and go with the flow. It's it's easy. However, you might also be surprised where the current takes you and how difficult it is to get back. You know, many people choose to apply the go with the flow principle to their outlook on life. This principle can be deceptive because you know, it implies an easygoing vibe with a pride being flexible. But in reality, it's the failure to plan. And it facilitates laziness and a complete disregard of who God is calling us to become. You know, there's an easy flow in life, but the truth is, is it never takes us where we want to go. And the sad reality is that unless we work and struggle, things tend to deteriorate. It's called the principle of entropy. Things break down over time. This is what God told Adam after the original sin. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. He tells him later, by the sweat of your brow, you will produce a harvest. used to be easy, but now I'll see things deteriorate. Thorns and thistles will pop up. Now things come at a difficult price. 
And when we simply go with the flow, the truth is, is that we don't really know or care where the river is taking us. It might even be taking us to disaster. You know, we could say, well, you know, I'll worry about that when it comes. However, once you get to the waterfall, all of a sudden you're interested, but it's far too late to do anything about it. Now, if you're getting frustrated with all the theoretical jargon and my use of drifting down the river analogy, then let's bring things a little bit closer to home and talk about something a little more practical. Have you ever noticed that the current of our culture seems to take us further and further and further away from God? Maybe you're like me and you've on occasion looked up and you wonder just how far, how, how it is you got so far away from God. I mean, like, how did this happen? I was good, and now I'm here? You know, that's what the Protestant Reformation was all about. In the 16th century, visionary pastors and leaders like Martin Luther and John Calvin, they spearheaded a movement that transformed Christianity and eventually led to the emergence of the Protestant movement. Now, these men were guided by the conviction that the Roman Catholic Church had drifted away from the essential, original teachings of Scripture, especially in regard to what was necessary for salvation. The church wasn't teaching people that in order to be saved, they must confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. No, they were teaching that in order for a person to be saved and get to heaven, they must take the sacraments, the Lord's Supper. They must belong to the church. So if you get thrown out, you're, you're done for. And you must purchase an indulgence, which is a piece of paper where the Rome put his stamp of approval on it, saying that this person can enter heaven. You had to pay for that privilege. Now, can you imagine just how many uneducated people, men and women who were seeking God, thought that all they had to do was show up to judgment carrying a piece of paper saying, well, the Pope said I could come in? Now, you can just understand why, why these visionary pastors and leaders like Martin Luther and John Calvin that they sought to reorient the church. They were, they were distraught about this. And the irony is that if these reformers you know, that, that, that if they had just gone with the flow, we wouldn't have the Reformation. They each suffered heavy persecution from the Roman Catholic Church because they refused to go with the flow any longer. Many of them lost their lives by being pulled apart by horses and burned at the stake as a heretic, condemned in front of everyone that they are cast out of the church and out of God's favor. Now, from the Reformation came the five solaces. These are Latin phrases, which mean the five alones. And, and you know, these are the, the essential parts of being a follower and disciple of Christ. If you never heard of the five solas, they are pivotal in your relationship with God. I can assure you that they are extremely important to you, even if you don't realize it. So these are the five solas. Sola scripturis, which means scripture alone. Nothing man can say can remotely come close to the authority of scripture. Scripture alone has authority over my life. Solus gratia. It's grace alone. We are not saved by anything or anyone but grace alone. Solus fide. This is faith alone. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Uh, solos Deo Gloria, which is the, the glory of God alone. The sole purpose of all creation is to bring God glory. It's got a doxological centrality that, that bringing God glory is the center of everything. Solos Christus, which is the fifth one, Christ alone. Now, we can only come to know God through Christ alone, and he is sufficient in every struggle of life. 
Now, uh, today's study on John speaks to the point of solus Christus, and before we dive in, I just want to stress how easy it is to drift away from God and Scripture. It is so easy for us to follow a lie that Christ isn't all we need. It's so easy to just add things to Scripture or put our own little spin on it or take take a verse out of context or maybe just add a little bit more on it. It's, it's, it's so easy to leave something out. But Scripture is sufficient. Jesus is sufficient. Listen to what Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way of where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I not been with you so long that you have yet come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe the works themselves. Let's pray. Father God, as we open your word and we studied about the words of your son Jesus, I pray, God, that we might see we cannot drift through life and we cannot just accidentally find ourselves in faith. That we must stand firm in your truth and recognize that Jesus is the only way, but also Jesus is sufficient. So, Father, just help us to bear that in mind and, Father, deliver that message to our hearts. We love you, Father. Just ask that you would be speaking now and not me. All these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Jesus begins our study today by telling his disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God believe also in me. Now, as you well know, when the Apostle John originally wrote this gospel, he didn't include chapter numbers or verse numbers. That was added later on to be able to have easier retention and reference. Now, it is strange, however, that the chapter marker is placed where it is because we have to know what's going on in the previous chapter to understand why Jesus is telling his disciples this. Keep in mind, when Jesus told his disciples, listen, don't let your heart be troubled, his disciples had plenty of reasons why they should be troubled. For example, Jesus just took the place of a household slave and washed their feet. He essentially told them that they have a very bright future in feet washing, and that's something they did not want to be doing. Also, Jesus told them that that one of them was going to betray him, and because of it, he was going to suffer many things at the hands of his persecutors. But the real troubling issue here is that none of them, save John, knew which one was going to do it. They know that Jesus, everything he says comes true, so which one is it? Is it me? Is it me? That's pretty troubling. Jesus told Peter that before morning, he was going to deny even knowing him three times. But probably the most troubling of all, he told them that he was about to leave them. And that where he was going, they couldn't follow him. 
that they would look for him and they wouldn't be able to find him. I mean, Jesus' disciples, they had good reason to be upset. Jesus tells them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Are you insane, Jesus? Of course I'm going to be upset about what you just did and said. How could I not be troubled? Well, Jesus is not insane. He simply knows something that we often tend to miss. And that is that God is all we need. He was, the, uh, he was with the disciples in person. He is in us in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In short, don't worry. Not just because you shouldn't worry, but because God lives in us. Jesus' words, they don't make any sense unless you include this part. For example, let, let's say a doctor comes in and tells you that you have a rare form of terminal cancer. He tells him, I'm sorry, you got about two weeks left to live. Would it be any comfort to you if after the diagnosis, the doctor said, you know what, hey, don't worry about it. No, what you just told me is extremely disconcerting, doctor. Like, how could you tell me not to worry? But what if he said, hey, don't worry, I have the cure right here. Well, that changes everything, doc. Why didn't you lead with that, right? Jesus isn't simply telling them troubling news and just saying, you know what, guys, go out there, keep your head up. You, you can be strong. Don't worry about it. He's giving them the antidote for worry and grief. And listen, Christ's words are more than a call for belief. They are a command for trust. You know, we teach our kids to believe in God and even confess ourselves. We believe in God. However, if we truly grasp the meaning of what we say, the troubles of our hearts would be decimated by faith. Fear and anxiety, they wouldn't reign over us anymore. They'd be cast out of our lives. We could face insurmountable odds because we have the spirit of peace, God himself living in us. If we really comprehended what it means to believe in God, we wouldn't have trouble. Notice also that, that Jesus tells his disciples, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, anyone who ever said that Jesus never said he was God, and Jesus, you know, the whole thing about Jesus is completely blown out of proportion, they just refuse to look at verses like these. Do you understand what Jesus just said? Jesus is calling for the same kind of belief that we give God himself. This week I continued a, a, a devotional on Genesis chapter 1. I was studying it. And um, it, it talks about how God separated the waters and made the dry land and the sea. That, that there was a water, Scripture says there was a water above and a water below. And, and just thinking about that, just in terms of sheer mechanical engineering, the second day of creation is just astounding. I mean, have you ever... Sometimes my wife, we uh, we actually have the, the water that you go and you fill up and you have a five-gallon jug and you flip it over. I don't know what those things Water dispenser, I guess. We, we have those. Well, Aaron, my wife, goes and gets um, you know three five-gallon jugs of water, and she comes back. I absolutely hate carrying that from the car back to the house. It's my job because I'm the man, but um, you know I hate doing it. Why? Because it's heavy. Water is extremely heavy. Water is 773 times the weight of air. And at sea level, water weighs 8.3 pounds per gallon. Now think about this. Just think about it. 71% of the Earth's surface is water. There's an estimated 332.5 million cubic miles of water on Earth. Just the estimated amount of water in the atmosphere today is 
54,460,000,000 tons. That's, that's after the water fell from the flood. Think about the power it would take to lift and separate the water from the earth. There's 326 million trillion gallons of water on earth. The concept of how big God must be to lift that amount of water is unfathomable. Yet, do you believe he can and has done it? Scripture tells us he did. Do you believe it? If so, then it should show us there's nothing that is too great for God to accomplish. Because if he can do that, he can do anything. If I can trust him to do that, I can trust him with anything. The call that Jesus made here was to say the very same belief you have in God the Father, have also in God the Son. There's nothing I can't do. Again, this is more than just a little pep talk. He's not telling his disciples, you know, lay back, put your feet up, coast through life without a care in the world. He's giving them the solution for their worries and their doubts and their fears. And guess what? It's not to coast. It's not to go with the flow. See, our troubles disappear the moment we place our trust in Jesus' hands. Does that mean we won't have trouble? No. It just means we won't be troubled by them. Jesus continues by offering up further encouragement to his disciples. You see, he knew it was upsetting to think about being separated from him. You know, every time I feel the Holy Spirit's presence upon me, it is the most exhilarating feeling in the world. And my most common prayer when this happens is, Please, Lord, don't leave me. I want to feel your presence all the time. But, you know, this isn't heaven. And God's will is sovereign. So he pulls away. Or I guess maybe I pull away. I don't know how it works, but I know it doesn't last forever. That's what the disciples were experiencing. They had found God, the creator and sustainer of the universe. They could talk to God face to face whenever they wanted. He has power over the ocean and the waves and the wind. He has power over death. I don't have to die. I'm going to stay with you forever. Wait, wait, what, what, what? You're leaving? Jesus tells them this, the, that the purpose of his departure is not just to leave them. Ah, peace out, guys. I'm out. He's telling them that he's going to prepare a place for them. And guess what? He's going to prepare a place for us, too. He says, if it weren't so, I would have told you. Now, I know this is a little silly, but my wife and I, we, we get into a heated discussion every once in a while. And uh, this one that we had was uh, about, uh, this in particular, was about alien life. You know, and she was telling me, like, this is a big world, a big, big galaxy. You know, like, maybe there's life on another planet. And I'm not saying it's not possible for life to exist on other planets. Maybe God's got another Earth somewhere. I don't know. I'd be interested to talk to him. Jesus come to you too? But, you know, whatever. Anyway, the, the point is, I, I'm not saying that life doesn't exist. I'm just saying we're never going to know about it. If we were going to know about it, it would be somewhere in Scripture. In other words, if there was life on other planets, I believe God would have told us. Yes, I, I know it's a ridiculous discussion, but, you know, here's the thing. Every time God has done something major in Scripture, he's alerted man ahead of time. From the flood, to the famine in Genesis, to the exile to Babylon, to the coming of Christ, to the second coming of Christ. And if the book of Revelation should teach us anything, 
It's that whatever happens on earth is a direct result of what God is doing in heaven. Everything God has prepared for us, he tells us ahead of time. And if he says it, it's going to happen, which makes sense why Jesus says, if it weren't true, I'd have told you. Well, in verse 4, he tells his disciples, you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas, it's kind of funny. He speaks up. He's like, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. How would we possibly know the way? Yet Jesus responds with the most profound I am statement found in the entire book of John. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. See, this statement is the epicenter of faith for every single believer. We don't need a piece of paper from the Pope. We don't store up good works so that we can enter heaven one day. We don't have to stay in the church and make sure that we're there every time they serve communion. Solus Christus. All we need is Christ alone. Again, I, I just I couldn't understand how anybody would make the argument that Jesus isn't God because the statements he makes about himself are undeniable. Look what he says in verses 7 through 11. He says, if you knew me, you knew my father. From now on, you know him and you've seen him. You're looking at him. Now, Philip says to him, he says, Lord, show us the father. That'll be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He says, he says well, I want to see the father. You're looking at him. He who's seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words I say to you, I don't make up. I don't speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe the works. I mean, you have to believe the works. You see, for millennia, people have been making the argument that Jesus, you know, he said stuff about himself, but he never said he was God. He was just a man. He's a good teacher and nothing more. But, but, C.S. Lewis said it best when he said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said, he wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or, or you can fall on your knees at his feet and call him Lord. And God. But let us not come up with patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus didn't just talk, though. You see, he backed up his words with works. Several times in the book of John, we see people testify to the works that Jesus did, saying, he must be of God. Nicodemus said it in John 3, he says, we know that no one can do the works that you're doing unless God is with him. That makes sense. It doesn't make sense how anybody would suggest that you're not of God because of the works that you do. After Jesus fed the 5,000 in John 6, the people marveled at his miracle. And in verse 14, it says, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Even the man that was born blind in John 9, whom Jesus healed, testified, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Yet he opened my eyes. You see, the reason this is relevant is because much of the time, we as human beings, we have this laissez-faire attitude. 
when it applies to our spiritual life, well, whatever happens, happens. I'm just enjoying myself, and I'm floating down the river of life. There's even a belief system that, you know, all religions in the world are the same, and we should just learn to peacefully coexist. Why can't we all just get along? Well, because truth doesn't mix with lies. Jesus doesn't give us that option. There's truth, there's lies. He said, I am the truth. And every other thing that sells itself up to give you access to God, everything that says this is how you get eternal life, this is how you can live to le- live forever, if it's not me, it's a lie. And you can't simply go with the flow on this one because the flow is leading you away from God. We have to take a stand for Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through him. You know, while it's fine to sit on an inner tube and float down the lazy river at a water park, it's never a good idea to go with the flow in life, especially regarding the things of God. Think about it. If Jesus and his disciples had simply just gone with the flow, none of us would have ever heard the gospel. If the reformers of the faith during the 16th century had had just simply gone with the flow, none of us would have a copy of Scripture in our hands where we could study and learn from it. If our parents and their parents before them had just, just gone with the flow, if they hadn't taken a stand for Christ, then we would not know about His rich mercy because no one would have been preaching to us the gospel. Nowhere in Scripture are we told that our life in Christ won't be a struggle. We don't fight, if we don't fight the current, we're going to drift away. Now let's be clear, I'm not saying we should fight to keep our salvation. What I'm talking about is our fight to hold on to our faith. There are spiritual forces in this world that are seeking to destroy our faith in God. They speak lies into our hearts and minds. They tell us, well, you know, if he really loved you, why did he let this happen? And God didn't really create the world. You came from an ape. Life is meaningless. So just give up. These are lies. The spiritual forces of evil communicate to us. They whisper it into our ears, trying to destroy our faith in God. Oh, look, we've got proof. We got proof. Do you know they had proof, supposedly, that that they, they had found the body of Jesus? Well, we got a cave here, and we found the body of Jesus in it. Everybody go home. Let me tell you something. You're looking for the body of Jesus. You ain't going to find it until he comes back, okay? So don't, don't give me this, you found the body of Christ. You're not destroying my faith. Scripture tells us that he rose from the dead. So before we close, let's just put our lives under the microscope for a second, shall we? Do we really believe that Jesus is sufficient? You know, we believe we don't need a piece of paper, that we sign, the sign by the Pope, you know, this is how I get into heaven. We don't believe that. We don't believe that, that practicing the, the Lord's Supper or being baptized is going to save us. We know we need Jesus for that. And, and, you know, he gets us saved. But do we really believe that he's sufficient for our life? Do we believe solus Christus that Christ is all we need? Christ alone you know, much of the time I find myself exhausting every resource I have in front of me before I, I, I just go to my knees and I take my troubles to God. I lay them at the foot of the cross. I exhaust myself. Much of the time I find myself worrying whether or not everything is going to be okay. How am I going to get through this? And you know what? I've been known to turn to other things to cope with loss or hide inside a book or a video game. 
because I don't like the world and the way the world's treating me. But you know, we don't need to cope in the form of a needle or a bottle or in the arms of another person. Why would we ever want to cope when he's given us the power to overcome? He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. I love what Sarah Young says about anxiety because, you know, sometimes anxiety, it just overwhelms me. I'm, over, I'm just biting my nails. How am I going to get through this? In her book, Jesus Calling, she says, anxiety is the result of considering your future without God in it. See, when we worry and fear and we let grief overtake us, we would do well to remember the words of Christ. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus gives us the power to overcome. It's not just, you know, just just get on an inner tube and float down the river of life. Whatever. Whatever's going to happen. Don't worry about it. He says, have belief in me. Trust me. I'm going to get you through this. It comes through him. This power, it comes through him and in him alone. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And if we just stop kicking up our feet and resigning ourselves to drift away from him, he will teach us how to stand firm in our faith and even go against the flow. Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.